Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Today is the first Sunday in Lent, and Lent is traditionally a penitential season. In Lent, we remember the suffering of Jesus, that he was a man of sorrows, inflicted and mistreated for our iniquities. He laid aside his glory in heaven to take on the humility of life and death for our sins. There's a theme in our Confession of Sin passage this morning that suits this season of the church here very well. It is the theme of humility. Our text is Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. So in our text here, wisdom teaches the truth that humility is better than self-promotion. Humility is the path to true praise, exaltation, glory, and joy. Well, self-promotion is a path to humility or to humiliation and shame. And first I need to say a few things about this principle. Humiliation is not the goal. When we say that God wants humility in us, we are not asking to be humiliated. Humiliation is not the goal, but humility is. When Solomon tells us that it is better, what is better that he's pointing to? Exaltation, honor, and praise are better. Come up here. Be elevated in the sight of all. That is better than Um, Excuse me, I'm sorry, but can you please step aside? You're in the way. The principle identifies the precursors to these results. Exalting yourself, standing in the place of the great, is the precursor to shame. While refraining from doing that, humility is the precursor to honor. Jesus fleshes this out. He elaborates on this principle when he teaches the disciples that whoever desires to be great must be the servant of all. He does more than elaborate with his teaching and his words. He shows them what that means. He washes their feet. He goes to the cross and he dies to pay for their sin. True greatness understands that humility is the path to exaltation. Jesus did this for the joy that was set before him. He humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. And because of this, God has given him a name, which is above every name, so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As a prod to confession, this is a call for us to repent of our pride and our arrogance. In order to draw this out, consider this. How often... Do we think too highly of ourselves? How often do we think that whatever it is, isn't your job? It's not your responsibility. You're too good for that. How often is 
life not fair? How often do you grumble to yourself or to others about how you don't deserve this kind of treatment? You don't deserve these circumstances. You don't deserve these responsibilities. Why do I have to clean up after everybody else? Why do they get such a nice life, a nice house, a nice family? Let me let you in on a little secret. It's not because we don't want honor or encouragement or praise or glory. That's not why we do these things. We do want those things. But we lie to ourselves about the path to those things. We reject the truth and refuse to believe wisdom and our Lord Jesus who says, I am the way. And he also says, take up your cross and follow me. Now this isn't some kind of masochistic Christianity that says, ooh, that hurts so good. Or that embraces pain and misery. On the contrary, this is faith, and it is faith that believes that Jesus is the King, and He desires our good, and He's in control of all things, and His way is perfect, and His way is the path to blessing and honor and glory, because His promises are majestic. Mark 10, 29-31. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, and houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please move. So in our worship series today, we come to the third of the Old Testament sacrifices in the Old Testament worship service. The third and the final one, the peace offering. And this offering is the culmination of the Old Testament worship, and it emphasizes the restoration of fellowship and peace between God and man, and between man and his brethren. This offering corresponds to the section of our worship, and if you look in our bulletins, it's, it's titled Communion. Um, once we've been cleansed via the purification offerings, or our confession of sin, and once we've been sanctified by the ascension offerings and the grain offerings, or the consecration portion of our service, we are invited into God's presence to eat a meal with Him. And we are going to shortly see that the sin offerings emphasized, as the sin offerings emphasized blood, and as the ascension offerings emphasized fire and smoke, the peace offerings emphasize purity and communal fellowship, communal eating. 
Leviticus 3 gives us the details of the sacrifice. All acceptable offerings were perfect, without blemish. And you could offer male or female cattle, verse 1. When his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He could offer a male or female sheep, verse 6. If his offering is a, as a sacrifice of, peace, of a peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. And he could offer goats, verse 12. And if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. The peace offerings were made as sacrifices to God, and as such, they went through all of the sacrificial rituals, the laying on of the hand on the head to symbolize the substitutionary aspect of the sacrifice, the shedding of the blood at the door of the temple uh, or the tabernacle and sprinkling the blood on the altar to atone for sin, the dividing up of the animal, the cutting up of the animal, and the burning of the fat and the roasting of the meat. And the aroma is sweet and the fat is set apart for the Lord. Verses 13 through 16. He shall lay his hand on its head and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. Then he shall offer from it his offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. The two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. <laughs> That's a funny verse. All the fat is the Lord's. You've seen the little pictures or the, the refrigerator magnets of an overweight person with that verse on there. Uh, all the fat is the Lord's, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. Finally, Moses emphasized the holiness of the sacrifice of the peace offering by re reiterating the prohibition of eating the fat and the blood. Verse 17. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. So this reiteration is, was necessary because this sacrifice was different from the other two sacrifices, the ascension offering and the sin offerings. The, uh, the sin offering, remember the sin offering for the priest was completely burned up, either on the altar or outside in, in the, in the, in, on the pile of ash heap, the carcass, the, the skin and the bones were, or the skin and the, the offal were. And then uh, the ascension offering, or the, the sin offering for the people was uh, consumed, but it was given to the priests. It was for the priests. But, and the ascension offerings were completely consumed on the altar. But when we get to this, this offering, not here in chapter 3, but in chapter 7, which we're going to get to in just a second, um, uh, when we get to this offering, he has to reiterate the prohibition of eating fat and blood because this offering was to be consumed by... God, burning the fat on the altar, by the priest, which they would give a portion of the, the, this offering to the priest, the breast and the, and the right thigh, and by the, 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 the worshiper and his family, those who were ceremonially clean, were all invited to participate in this meal. So that's why this reiteration was necessary. 
because it was a communal meal. And this is evident in Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 38. In Leviticus 7, Moses lays out what the text calls the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. In verse 11 it reads, This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings which he shall offer to the Lord. And the rest of that passage is explaining the, the ritual code, the rules of things that you would have to do about offering the peace offerings. And this law prescribed that the offering could be made at any time in the year as a thanksgiving offering, verse 12, or it could be made at any time of the year as a fulfillment of a vow or a free will offering, in verse 16. The, the law also prescribed that both unleavened cakes and leavened bread must be offered with the peace offerings, verses 12 and 13. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. Verses 15 through 18 say that the meat from the sacrifice could only be eaten on the day of the sacrifice and the next day, but not the third day. On the third day, the rest of the, the sacrifice would have to be burned. They were not allowed to eat it, and if, if they did eat it, they would be guilty. They would, they, would, they would bear guilt because God prohibited that, and this is a type of Christ and, and being in the, in, the, in the ground for three days, where they were not permitted to eat it on the third day and beyond. It must be consumed. Verses 19 through 27 give clarification that all those and only those who are ceremonially clean are permitted to partake of the sacrifice. It repeats that they must abstain from the fat and the blood again, and whoever partakes of the peace offering, being unclean, shall be cut off from his people, which is basically a sentence of excommunication if you're going to violate these laws of holiness. The remainder of the passage is about the portion that belonged to the priests, the breast and the right thigh. So here we see that God, the priests and the worshipers, all partake of the same sacrifice. They are, it's, a, it's, a, it's a communal meal, and this is a glorious picture of the peace of the covenant of God with his people. We understand this here today and now about table fellowship. Uh, how we eat with friends and we share we we share hospitality together, but in Eastern cultures, it, this carries a, a heightened expectation, a higher a, an elevated connotation. So the rules of hospitality in the East would indicate uh, friendship, trust, generosity, even military support. Uh, in in the East. If you ate with somebody, you are bringing them into your circle. And that's what God is doing with his people in the peace offering. In Leviticus 17, Moses teaches that there is no peace outside of the covenant. Or outside of God's prescribed means of worshiping him. So as the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness, as, they, as long as they were following the tabernacle around... They were never allowed to not sacrifice whatever they sacrificed, whatever they killed for eating, had to be offered in sacrifice to the Lord. 
Leviticus 17, 1-9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of, of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. To the end, that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to the priest, and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons, after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So it's pretty straightforward. You don't worship other gods. And until the Israelites settled in the promised land, and distance made it impossible for them to bring all of their sacrifices to the, the tabernacle, all the meat eaten had to be sacrificed to the Lord at the tabernacle. All the blood spilled had to be sprinkled in the tabernacle. All the fat had to be offered to the Lord, to God. And in Leviticus 19, God reiterates the holiness of his requirements regarding the peace offerings. 19 verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. And then he fleshes this out, and uh, starting again at verse 5. If you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and on the next day, and if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination, it shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. So God's holy standard is perfection, and he does not look lightly on those who profane his hallowed offerings, his hallowed, his, his sanctified gifts. So this is the peace offering. Now let's talk about what the correlation between that and communion is. And we start with this aspect of holiness. The fencing of the table. That's, that's the theological term for it. And uh, fencing the table means uh, guarding it, uh, defending it, setting up a, a barrier between those who would partake of it and those who would not partake of it. We, it refers to the blurb in our bulletins at the bottom of the notes for the, uh, for the sermon. There's a little blurb that talks about the Lord's Supper and who is invited to participate in it. It explains to visitors that our requirements, what the requirements, what our requirements for participation in the Lord's Supper are. God's fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant and his invitation to the, the world to come near through the gospel in no way diminishes his holiness. If anything, we've come to a mountain that cannot be touched. It's, it's holier. We've, we've gone to Hebrews 12 and 13 multiple times through this series. 
Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul argues that participation in the supper is participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Verses 14 through 17. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So flee from idolatry, because idolatry doesn't belong in Christ. You cannot have your, uh, your focus, your attention divided. You cannot have your allegiance separated from Christ and then participate him, in Him, or you're bringing danger upon yourself. Because from there He warns the Corinthians that compromising with idols and syncretizing with the world is dangerous. Verses 21 and 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he judges. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, many of you are sick and dying because of this, this failure here, this failure to separate out this idolatry from the Lord's table. Now this is why we warn visitors and the congregation, you all, that this meal is for people who believe that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and that His blood washes away their sins. It's, he's, it's, for, it's for, for believers and not believers in name only. It's, not for those who take, it's only for those who take their faith seriously. Those who, who genuinely believe. Not those who just will assent and walk along the street not acting or believing because they like whatever they, that community gives to them. Those who partake unworthily eat and drink judgment upon themselves. The gospel, though, while it is powerful to save Christians, is an indictment against sinners, and those who mock Jesus put themselves in harm's way. So we fence the table. But this brings us to the next question. Why then would we engage in such a dangerous exercise every single week? What, what are we doing? Why do we have weekly communion? And first I want to point back to a, a verse which I just read from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. We called the cup the communion of the blood of Christ and the broken bread of the communion of the, we called the broken bread the communion of the body of Christ. The gospel is definitely, is certainly powerful medicine. And while it is dangerous for sin or unrepented, or unrepented sinners to partake in it, it is life and it is health and it is peace for God's people. It is peace for you and for me. It is peace for the church. In Acts 2, at the beginning of the church, after the first sermon, we see this in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. 
The gospel is life and fellowship and peace. A few verses later, we see them worshiping every day. Verses 46 and 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And as the church grew and the Christians settled into their weekly observance of the Sabbath, we see them gathering together on the first day of the week to break bread. Acts 20, verse 7. Now in the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart, to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So we see that the, we talked about this when we talked about why do we have weekly worship. We worship weekly because of the Sabbath, the, the fourth commandment, uh, God, God commanding us to take one day in seven. But uh, when the church first started out, it was a feast, and the feasts lasted many days. And so they broke bread every day. But one last uh, reason that I want to bring out, and one of the more compelling reasons for me myself personally, that for having weekly communion is this whole covenant renewal worship pattern itself. When we've gone to the scripture and we've asked God, how are we to worship? And we come into the scripture and we look at where we see worship services in the scripture and we've, we've seen these, these patterns of, of confession of sin, consecration, and communion being included in the worship service in the Old Testament uh, offerings, we see that the worship of God is culminated in the sacrament, which typifies the peace and life which God offers to his people in communion. So now we come to what are we doing in communion? Uh, the elements, the bread and the wine. We use bread and wine because God commanded us to when he instituted the, the supper. But since we've made a connection between the peace offerings and the Lord's Supper, it bears some consideration about why do we use bread and what kind of bread do we use and why do we use wine and, and what, what, what do we need to know about that? What's the significance of those elements? And the first thing I have to say is that it is the grace of God that we use bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. It is the grace of God. God has given us the food of the gods. He has given us ambrosia. He has given us the very food that he claimed for himself and separated the Israelites away from in the Old Testament. In the Lord's Supper. In the Old Testament, the, he the Hebrews, the Israelites, were forbidden from eating the fat and drinking the blood. Now, in the New Testament, God commands us to drink the blood and to eat the choicest portions. When we eat Christ, we are eating the choicest sacrifice that God has ever made. When we drink that wine, we're drinking Christ's blood, which he completely forbade in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 44, verses 6 through 8, Ezekiel was rebuking the Israelites for their sin. But we read this relevant passage. 
Verses uh, Ezekiel 44. Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations when you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house, and when you offered my food, the fat and the blood. Then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. The fat and the blood is God's food. The fat and the blood. God's food is the fat and the blood. In the Old Testament, we are prohibited from this because it was holy. That's why you don't eat the fat. That, that's why you don't eat the blood. It's God's. It's life. The life was in the blood and the richness of life was in the fat. In Jesus, we are now made holy so that we can partake of the holy things. The ceremonial distinctions are obliterated. Because there's no longer a, a veil, there's no longer a temple, there's no longer a high priest that's separating us from God. God has come down to us Himself and given us Himself to us directly. We pray to Him directly. His Spirit dwells in us. We are the temple. We are set free now to eat and drink in holiness and peace, in sweet communion with the God of heaven and earth. So what about the leaven? What about the bread? Leaven is a picture of growth. That's what leaven signifies. Growth, development. And it can have it has both positive and negative affiliations in the scripture. The question is, is what are you symbolizing by that growth? That's the issue. Issue. The issue is symbolism. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. That is an excellent connotation. That's glorious. The kingdom of heaven grows. We have negative connections. The doctrine of, of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's also leaven. Not so good. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees is leaven. Luke 12. Paul likens leaven to malice and wickedness in 1 Corinthians 5. It's a Passover reference. And the teaching of the circumcision is leaven in Galatians 5. In the, the peace offerings, we see that the, the Israelites were commanded to offer both leavened and unleavened bread. They, they, were, off, they were commanded to use the unleavened bread for the Feast of Passover, Leviticus 23.6, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In fact, in the Passover, they had to get rid of all the leaven in all their houses. Get rid of the leaven. It was a picture of getting rid of... The old ways, the, the Egyptian uh, uh, false gods, the idolatry. But they were commanded to bring leavened bread for the first Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. Leviticus 23:17. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven, for they are the first fruits to the Lord. So the question is then, what are we trying to symbolize? Uh, the unleavened bread would be a symbol, a symbol of penitence, of repentance, of, of, of turning from our sin. 
And our practice of using risen bread is a festal symbol. It's a party. It's a fellowship. It's a, it's, it's a wedding feast. It's a celebration of God's victory and accomplishment and new growth in the world. It's a picture of the kingdom. God has done away with the old leaven at the cross, and thus we celebrate the new growth of his kingdom, the new life at the Lord's Supper. We still break the bread. We're still recalling the fact that Christ's body had to be crushed and torn apart on the cross. We still we don't forget that, but we recognize that what the, the new body that God has put together in Christ is a, a, a live, growing healthy, beautiful body. It's, it's, it's a glorious picture of the growth of his kingdom. Which brings us to the wine. It's a common practice in the modern day evangelical church to use grape juice in the Lord's Supper, and we use wine. Why is that? Well, the first and, and easiest answer is that's what Jesus instituted the supper with, was wine, not grape juice. The text calls the liquid in the cup the fruit of the vine which means wine in the first century context, plain and simple. It's fermented grape juice. To make it mean something else, which is certainly attempted in many different places, it requires ridiculous linguistic acrobatics. I like that term. <laughs> ridiculous linguistic acrobatics. Making words mean what they don't mean. Lying about what the text says. Basically, it involves dishonesty. Jesus used wine when he instituted the supper. But secondarily, there's a symbolic element involved in using wine. Wine is potent. When we use wine, we taste the power and the richness of the blood of Christ. It's potent and sweet. It cleanses us and it brings us life. It makes us joyful. It brings brings gladness to the heart of man. And remember that in Leviticus, it says that the life is in the blood, and God invites us to his life in this blood and sacrament, and this life is both potent and sweet. It's powerful, powerful medicine. Another characteristic of our practice is that we invite all baptized members of the covenant to participate. Which means that we include the children at the supper. And we do not have time to give a full treatment of this topic right now, by any means. But I would like to mention a few brief points. First, this is a covenantal meal. It's a family meal. It's meant for God's family, for God's people, for all the covenant members. God makes his promises to his people and their children, and that's why we baptize them. And Paul calls the children of believers holy, which is also why we baptize them. We believe that children are to participate because they are God's children as much as we are. They are set apart unto God as much as we are. And Jesus specifically makes a point of inviting the little children to himself. Mark 10. And there are parallel passages too. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, 
and blessed them. Now, if Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God, and if he says that this is the type that you need to emulate in order to be a child of God, then whatever we say, we can't say that children can't be in the kingdom of God. Of such is the kingdom of God. So surely God requires us to feed his lambs. And so we do. And we close with a look at the real presence of the Lord's Supper. In the institution of the Supper, Jesus clearly teaches us that the broken bread is his body, and the wine is his blood. Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Oh, I love that verse, by the way. Now, I'm going to take a little mini segue here because it just it's so beautiful. Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this again until I drink, with it, drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. But, Jesus, but we know that, and, and so that there's proof that Jesus' kingdom is established right there. Because in Acts 10, Peter says, Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, before by God, even to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So the kingdom is established. Glorious little segue, sorry. Um, so, the, 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 the cup is his blood, the bread is his body. In John 6, Jesus teaches on the need for us to eat his body and to drink his blood. Verses 53 to 58. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he, set, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now at the outset, these are hard teachings. As we see in this chapter, most of Jesus' followers leave him when he says this. These are hard teachings. His disciples didn't understand it, but they didn't know where else to go. They said, you have the words of life, so we don't get it, but we're here. We, we believe. That's faith. They didn't have any place better to go. Eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood is a declaration of our dependence on God for life and for peace. Our sin has separated us from God, and it is only by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ that we can be set right with God. And this means we must participate in that sacrifice. 
And we participate in that sacrifice by faith. It takes place by faith in the gospel. But the gospel happens on the earth. It happens in flesh and blood. It happens in covenant ritual and reality. It's rooted in the Jewish history and promises and the men and women who, who live that we read about in the Bible. Belief brings us into the heavenly kingdom which has an earthly reality. When we confess Jesus Christ, we get baptized and to join His body, the church, which is a real thing on the earth. We get wet when we do that. We really get wet. We really get connected to His body. In the church, we partake of the sacraments and the sacrifice, and we partake of the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood by means of sacraments, bread and wine, by sign and seal, by symbol and word. We eat Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace by which God then communicates to you His love, and then you communicate your faith in Him through obedient eating and drinking, through humble, faithful participation, and through genuine belief and life. The end result of this real presence of Christ in the meal the end result of this is real peace. When we are truly united to Him in faith, when we exercise our obedience to Him, we have entered God's presence. We've been cleansed from our sins. We've been consecrated for His service. And we've been interwoven into His life and to His body. And He is now in us and with us and through us. And now we are His body prepared to go out and do His work. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Christians, Jesus died for you. And as surely as you participate in this bread and wine, you participate in his life and peace. He gives you this food and drink. He gives you life and blessing. Let us celebrate our God in gratitude, praise, and worship. Christ's body, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.